Today, I'm really excited. We're speaking with Gary Ochagroso, the managing partner of Franchise Growth Solutions. And, and in our webinars, we've been talking a lot about franchise sales, uh, franchise culture, being a good franchisor and growing your franchise system. What I'm excited about today's webinar, it's all about onboarding your franchisees. And so for emerging brands, you've sold franchises, um, and now you need to get them open. And um, it's really great to have Gary with us. Gary has a ton of experience, both on the franchisor end and with his company now, Franchise Growth Solutions. Gary's focus is helping emerging brands grow. I know Gary's team provides a ton of services. Um, what I find the most interesting is they provide founder mentoring and coaching services for new franchise founders. They, they assist with franchise sales. And most important is um, operations, infrastructure, and supply chain support. So, um, Gary, thanks for, thanks for uh, doing this webinar with us today. Oh, well, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate the opportunity. So, yeah, no, it's, it's Gary. I mean, I think um, as I look at the pieces to the puzzle, you know, that we're trying to put together for emerging brands, um, this one is a topic that's come up often um, from our clients and other franchisors, which is really um, that onboarding process. Um, so, I, I, you know, there's interesting things. And a, a little preview into the webinar, um, Gary and I did a walkthrough about an hour ago, and a couple of things stuck out to me, which is Gary's focus on culture um, and really in introducing your franchisees to the culture of your franchise system. And then something we're gonna discuss at the end, which Gary brought up, which I think is, is tremendous point, which Gary's point was, hey, the biggest threat to an emerging franchisor are rogue franchisees. So as we get into the webinar, we're gonna talk about a bunch of things, but Gary, I definitely wanna deal with the rogue franchisees down the line, right? And I definitely wanna get into culture because I feel like it's come up in almost every one of our webinars. It's something so easy for people to overlook and yet it's probably one common denominator for success. So Gary, I'm gonna, so from the starting point, just generally, what, what's your thoughts, characteristics and criteria that franchisors should follow when they're awarding franchises? Well, I guess uh, as a headline, uh, I would tell you that franchisors should have a system and a process for awarding franchises. And the reason I focus on that a lot with emerging brands is that the onboarding process actually starts at the very beginning of the sales process. And we'll talk more about creating value and things of that nature. But for me, when we're working with a franchisor, um, we want the franchisor to define who they believe their franchisee is. What is the franchisee's profile? Um, you see here, we've written down, no, it's not for everyone. And the reason I say that is because many franchisors, especially startups, believe that their brand can be handled by anyone. Everyone is gonna love them. Everyone is gonna be their franchisee. And therefore they eventually mistakenly at times award franchises to people who are not a good fit. Um, you know, I'm not a good hands-on um, mechanical type person. So if I were uh, looking to buy a franchise, I probably would not be good at, you know, um, 
let's say, you know, a, a maintenance type franchise or a lawn type franchise, because that's not what I like to do. And I don't know that I could manage people who like to do that because I don't I don't tie into that. And that that's what I when I talk about culture and belief systems, um, it's very important that franchisors have a culture statement that they have a mission statement that they have a brand position. And I know we'll talk about this later on, but the reason it becomes so important is because if the franchisor doesn't um, articulate their own mission and their own culture and their own brand position, then they don't know what to look for when they're awarding a franchise. So I have a client, for example, that's very much into um, law of attraction, community work, uh, sustainability, respect for employees, uh, things of this nature. It's really the pillars of their concept. Even though they're a restaurant concept, their company is based on the things I just mentioned. Well, if I'm sitting across the table from a potential franchisee who doesn't buy into any of that, who thinks, well, culture, that's a lot of nonsense. Just show me the P&L. Let's just talk about making money. Um, they may not be a good fit ultimately because they're speaking different languages. So culture and culture, belief system, understanding where the potential franchisee is coming from, I think is very important. And it really helps to create that value, the value for the brand. Because if I'm a franchisor and I understand who my franchisee should be and I'm steeped in my culture and I'm not going to give up on that, then everything I do in the presentation end of that franchise sale is going to be done with the idea of creating value and respect for my brand. If I don't value and respect the brand, if I'm willing to skip steps, if I'm willing to uh, let a franchisee come in who maybe hasn't done part of the work that needs to get done in order to qualify, then I'm demonstrating that I'm willing to break the rules and I don't have respect for my own brand. So how would I ever have, how can I ever expect that a franchisee would respect my brand when I don't respect it myself? So creating value is very, very important also. Yeah, and, and you know, Gary, I, I mean, so again, from this point of view, I, I get it, right? So so the franchise needs need to be aligned. Also, the your process is, is really going to teach them about your system, your culture, and what you'd expect. I, I think there's so many brands out there. We have the conversations about um, brand positioning and culture. And ironically, it's, you know, what I find, it, not only is it important for onboarding franchisees and communicating that culture to them, but it's embedded in almost everything else too. So when we talk about marketing and brand development, right? And when you're selling franchises, you really need to have that culture, that unique selling point, that mission statement, and sometimes it sounds corny, but it really gets to the heart of, of what your franchise system is and, and what I find what they, they become. So um, in terms of the process itself, and I know you work with a number of brands and you're involved in the onboarding process, right? So how do you go about setting expectations, visibility, things that are important uh, for you when you onboard franchisees? Well, it's a, that's, a, that's a great point and a great topic. And again, at this point, once the franchise has been awarded, 
and the franchisee or the, the prospect is now a franchisee. They're now part of the family. They're now yep. part of the system. Um, we need to set some house rules, so to speak. What are the next steps? What are the expectations? So typically uh, what we would guide our franchisors in doing is to have what we call an orientation meeting. And I love to do those face-to-face and in person if the franchisee is close to the franchisor's office bring them in bring two or three franchisees in at the same time create that camaraderie and really start that that relationship if they're far away you can do it on the phone either way there needs to be a meeting set up after the franchise agreement is signed and at that meeting you need to review in my opinion the process of the startup phase so where and where I talk about that is that the franchisee is in business as soon as they sign the franchise agreement. Unfortunately, some franchisors and some franchisees think that they're not in business until they turn the key and open the door. Uh, if it's bricks and mortar business, my position is you're in business the minute you sign the franchise agreement. So. The key is to understand what phase of the business am I in? Well, I'm in the startup phase. Now, what does that mean? That means we've got to get you connected with a, let's use bricks and mortar, for example. We've got to get you some real estate help, uh, connect you with some brokers we work with, select a site, do a feasibility, do an LOI, negotiate a lease, get an architect, do a prototype, get an as-built, hire a contractor, build build a shop, get you into training, and then get you open. That's kind of the whole startup phase, and that may take many months. So by giving the franchisee a window, by letting the franchisee know, hey, we see this window just like you. This is everything that needs to get done. We're not ignoring it. However, however, you as the franchisee need to focus only on the next step. And in this case, the next step, if it were brick and mortar business, would be your next step is to work with uh, some real, real estate brokers to find your location. That's what you need to focus on. Very often what happens if you don't do this, this process, the franchisees and like all human beings, we like to do the things that we like to do. So the franchisee is spending no time finding a location. Meanwhile, they're calling the franchisor up and they're talking about, hey, I got this great marketing idea or I want to pass out flyers over here at They're not at that point yet. The point that they need to be focused on is the next step, which in this case would be finding a location. You've got to get them involved in the work. Some franchisees think, well, I've signed my franchise agreement. I paid my franchise fee. Call me up when my store is built and I'm ready to go or call me up. It doesn't work that way. If you want franchisees to stay focused on the next step, let them do it get them involved in the work. So if they're finding a location, I keep using that as an example, because it's something if you're in a bricks and mortar business, we can all relate to, then that franchisee needs to be communicating with that commercial broker, needs to go out looking at sites, filling out site selection surveys, if that's what you use in your company, um, to submit back to the franchise, or they need to be busy. If they're not busy, they're gonna be sidetracked. And if they're sidetracked, they're not going to be focused on the next step. And if they're not focused on the next step, they're not moving that startup process along because it's the franchisee's responsibility to get that unit open with your guidance. And you need a very strong mechanism to monitor the franchisee. Now, that doesn't mean that you're micromanaging. It doesn't mean that you're a cop. 
uh, or bad guy. It means that there's some mechanism. What we typically would do in one of my companies is about every 10 days, um, we would have not me, but the person who was assigned to them, depending on where they were at, if it was the project manager, there would be a telephone call every week or every 10 days. Hey, let's go through our checklist. Let's see where we're at in the manual. Have you done this? Have you identified a site? Have you done this? So there's a constant communication with the franchisee. That's very, very important in the onboarding process here because it sets the tone. What you're doing here is you're giving them a window, you're focusing them on the next step, you're putting them in a position to have to deliver, meaning they're doing the work and you're holding them and they're holding you accountable for that process in a very clear, professionally communicated manner. When you get into those types of routines, franchisees not only get into those routines, think of a, a child's bedtime. Don't, I don't want to diminish the franchisee, but it's like a child needs to have a bedtime. Um, but more importantly, you're creating more value. You're demonstrating to the franchisee that everything you do has a process which has been thought through, tested, monitored, and then implemented to the franchisee. The more often you do that, the more value you'll create for your franchise community. How, so for, and again, I, I mean this for a startup or emerging brand, it may be one person. Uh, for brands that are accelerating, maybe an entire team. But generally, what are, for a franchisor, what are the general roles or positions they should have covered for their opening team? Well, and maybe okay. one person or 10, but... Yeah, you know, again, part of our part of our franchise or coaching, we call it coach, mentor, and grow. Part of that process is to create what we call, uh, and everyone would know, a table of organization. And on that org chart, um, we might have fifty boxes, <laughs> fifty different things that need to get done. And in the beginning, in a small organization all of those boxes may be filled with one, two or three names. And eventually as you grow and you hire people, other people will do those tasks. The fact that you don't have 50 people, just to use a number to fill in the 50 boxes, doesn't mean that those things don't need to get done. They need to get done. So in the very early stages, what we like to do is first within the organization, find out who is currently doing that on the company side. So if it's a, a restaurant, they may have a director of operations or they may have a, their best general manager. We would want to focus that person perhaps on the training aspects, the operational training aspects with the franchisee. So we utilize the talents of the people already in the organization to supply service to the franchisee and then the blanks, how do we fill in the blanks? Uh, what my company does is we have a cooperative of about 25 different franchise executives in various disciplines, whether it's um, a supply chain or an architect or somebody who's a general contractor or a marketing person, uh, a web developer, all the different pieces to the puzzle that a franchise, an emerging brand or a startup brand would need in order to deliver the right product and service, meaning the franchise system, to the franchisee. So 
a mistake that I see very often is franchisors who are typically entrepreneurial, they're of the belief that they can do everything. Well, yeah, I'm the web guy and I'm the this and I'm the that. Well, first of all, no, you're not. You're really, you're not. And secondly, you're better off bringing in people who are truly experts in those fields because you're going to deliver more value to your franchisee. So if you look at this slide here of best practices, um, and I think that's where you're going with this, right, Charles? Oh, yeah, to, to, to this, this is exactly. Yeah, I mean, it, it comes down to, I keep going back to this creating value for the brand, and that is to, to, to really recognize that no one franchisee is bigger than the brand. That what we do in the franchise community on the franchisee side and the franchisor side is to build the value and the equity of the trademark. Very often franchisees will only focus on their unit and look, rightfully so, they've whatever, they've got an investment in there and they want to make sure their unit is profitable. I get it. However, however, the more value we create for the brand, ultimately the more sales and profit the franchisee will have on this on the unit level. That that's just the way it is. It's difficult at times to have franchisees understand that in the beginning. But if you've done a great job in the, in the awarding process, the franchisee should already understand that this is a group effort and we're creating value for the brand and that will ultimately create value for the franchisee. You need to set boundaries with franchisees um, by giving them clear direction and chain of support. Um, Part of, the, part of the challenges that startups and emerging brands have is that very often the founder of the company will be the person doing the franchise sales. This to me is the most dangerous thing that a franchisor can do because it tears down the boundary that the CEO and the founder of the company needs to have from its franchisees. Why is this important? And I'm not talking about putting up walls or being unapproachable. However, when you bring in a franchisee that you've wined and dined and, oh, we got to sell this guy. I need the check. We need the money. We got to buy more leads. I mean, this is how emerging brands sometimes think. Uh, and you become friends with the franchisee through that process. Now, all of a sudden, you're the franchisor and that's the franchisee those boundaries have been muddled. And when the franchisee wants to run something that's uh, different from what's in the system, they may bypass the, the chain of support. I'm not going to call my director of operations. I'm going to call Joe, my franchisor, because we had a great night at dinner when he was selling me the franchise. That's a big big problem because now you've got to backpedal from that relationship and ultimately the franchisee is going to feel dumped. There's just, that's just human nature. They're going to feel dumped. Or, you know, Gary, it's, it's interesting because um, as you say it, you know, I, I, on the other end of the spectrum, when legal issues arise and then you use the term rogue franchisees, but I've seen that breakdown in the relationship where you lose that franchisor or franchisee relationship, then it becomes a friendship. And then all of a sudden, six months later, I'm seeing, you know, clients say, hey, we need to send a default notice out. They're <laughs> operating outside their territory or they're starting a competing business and then they do go rogue. And, yeah. and then, you know, and then you, you, I, I, then you run into all, you know, you have issues of litigation and, 
I have a big philosophical issue too, especially for the emerging brands, which is I don't like to sue franchisees, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, they, the emerging brands really do, you realize at a certain point that you're, those initial franchisees do have tremendous power. And I think it's important what you're saying here to set those boundaries is critical. I've seen, I wouldn't have expected it unless I've seen it. I, I've seen the negative consequences right. to not doing that. Right. And, you know, uh, uh, no one no one goes on day, from, from on day one being a good franchisee and day two, there's a legal action. Right. It doesn't happen overnight. There are a series of events that erode that relationship. Now, the relationship that is eroded is the relationship that the franchisee has in their mind. It may not be the real relationship. It's the French, it's the relationship that the franchisor has allowed to develop because they did not manage the expectation of the franchisee again, because they're chasing checks. They're not, they're not focused on the long-term goal of collecting royalties and it creates problems. The, the other piece is, is that once they're in the system, they don't treat every franchisee equally. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is key. This is very important. And the best and the simplest, the simplest way to treat every franchisee equally is to manage within the agreement. Uh, again, uh, you know, no one likes to pull the agreement out of the top desk drawer and go, well, it says right here. That's not what I'm talking about. That's what happens, uh, Charles, when they get to you, okay? When it's lawsuit time, that's when the agreements come out. But if franchisors manage the relationship and manage their system within the confines of the agreement, then everyone is treated equally. You never have to be nervous about having all your franchisees in the same room at the same time. Right. And, and, and at the end of the day, you're managing within compliance of your agreement. Again, if you start breaking the rules within your own franchise agreement, what you're demonstrating to the franchisees is that the system doesn't have value. Because if it doesn't have value to the franchisor, it certainly won't have value to the franchisee. You know, that, that, um, yeah, unfortunately, um, and you mentioned about sometimes chasing checks and there's a lot going on, but I've seen the negative consequence to that. Um, you know, we discussed a lot of this, right? So your points about onboarding franchisees, it's, you know, the mistakes are not introducing culture. Um, but you know, so we've discussed that, right? Which again, I think is critical we discussed, you know, being friends and that that's a problem during the onboarding process. Um, you've also discussed unclear expectations, which I, again, what I appreciate, and I, I think emerging brands know this is, is to set that process. And I do like the idea of, in, you know, after they sign the agreement, go through the entire process. Uh, so I want to ask you about undercapitalized, but one question I had, Gary, is <clears throat> assume it's a brick and mortar franchise how frequently are you, would you expect the team to be touching base or checking in and speaking with the franchisee? Say it's a nine month development process. How frequently would you be checking in? This would be before they're opened. Before they're open. Before they're opened, um, I would do a scheduled telephone call uh, about every 10 days, depending where they are in that process. So when they're in the site selection process, 
probably every 10, 12, 15 days is okay if there's nothing to report. Uh, but I like to check in, even if I'm hearing that there's nothing new to report, because if I'm going two or three phone calls, which would could be 30 or 40 days, and I'm, and I'm constantly hearing nothing new to report, well, then I know I need to get sensitive to that, because why is there nothing new to report? Um, when I'm in the construction phase or the architectural phase, uh, I think I'm probably touching base about once a week, and those telephone calls might include not only the franchisee, they would include the architect, and they might include the general contractor. And the reason I like to do those calls weekly um, and with those other folks kind of in the room is, and again, this kind of gets back to the what we write uh, operations manuals. One of the operations manuals that we write is called a construction and design manual. And it essentially has a list of tasks that need to get done every seven days, every 10 days. When we get on the phone with the franchisee and the general contractor and sometimes the architect, we want to make sure all of those things are done before we turn the page and go to the next week. Now, what GCs and architects are notorious, notorious at doing is they go like this. They start to blame each other when things aren't done. So if you have the franchisee, the architect and the GC on the phone about every seven to 10 days, all of that junk comes out in the phone call and you can deal with it professionally and the franchisee now knows what their task is. So you're, you're kind of gently pushing the franchisee to manage the architect and the GC in a manner that's consistent with the manual. And it also prevents people from skipping steps. Well, we don't have to do this step. Let's go to and do the step that's next week because this one isn't done yet. Now, in some cases, you may have to make those modifications, but if you're a franchisor and you kind of dig in and say, no, nope, we're not going to step three until step one and two are done, again, what you're doing is you're creating value in your system by letting the franchisee know that every step is important and we don't skip steps. Because when you start skipping steps, when they're in their business, if it's a, uh, a food business, all of a sudden they're going to skip a certain part of the recipe or they're going to skip a certain part of the service and that's going to damage the brand. So that's what's important in terms of how you maintain that communication, in my opinion, with the franchisee. And then, then after, I guess they have their soft opening, after they open, then your contacts and communication they just become consistent with other franchisees, right? There's no, or is there like a, a in an immediate period after they open where you guys are doing any intensive follow-ups? Yeah. I mean, again, it's different for each, each, each brand that, that, uh, that I represent, they each have their own system, but generally speaking, um, what kind of what we preach and teach is, is that when that franchisee opens up, you have your post opening team there, you know, there you've been with them, whatever, three, four, five, seven days, whatever is the system. Um, a follow-up should be done, not obviously telephone calls, uh, you know, weekly, uh, but I would do personally, I would have an RDO go back to that new franchisee right at the end of the month. And I would probably do monthly visits for the first 90 days and then go to quarterly visits, which are pretty typical visiting them once a quarter. Of course, one of the things that, that, uh, franchisors can also utilize is they can have their field person, 
call the franchisees. We used to have call days. So my RDOs at five RDOs when we were doing Desert Moon uh, was a fresh Mexican grill concept. We had about, uh, I don't know, 25 or 30 restaurants. We had one regional director of operations assigned, I believe, to every five restaurants or seven restaurants. The RDOs had to check in with their franchisees every week. Hey, Joe, how's it going? How'd you do last week? I'm looking at the numbers. Um, have you hired anyone new? Are you training anyone? Are you building your bench? Had that problem with your manager go? How'd you resolve that? You need to be in touch with your franchisees on a regular basis. And by the way, regular basis is however the franchisor defines it within reason. I don't think, I don't think you should, I don't think you should let a franchisee go a year without touching base in some way, shape or form. One of the issues I see is that many times the operations manual becomes an afterthought and doesn't yeah. really reflect the process, right? Yeah. Um, so my question is, how do you address that? And also, let's assume it's not an afterthought. How do you guys approach, you know, we sold our first 50 units, you know, as you're going through that onboarding and opening process, are you guys actively updating those, you know, those uh, manuals and systems? Yeah, here's, here's the issue that we see with manuals. And again, I, I'm, I, I'm a former franchisee. I was a franchisee of Dunkin' Donuts. Uh, I'm a former franchisor. Um, so I've kind of seen it from both sides of the table. And what I see right now, and it's, and it's one of our biggest challenges and why franchisors don't use the manuals to the fullest extent, there's a few reasons. First of all, um, and we don't do this, but there are a lot of companies that the manuals are just boilerplate. It's just one size fits all, change the name, do a checklist, here you go. Uh, we actually write manuals from the ground up and we do, those manuals are broken down. So we have a site selection manual. We have a construction design manual. Uh, if it's a restaurant, we might have a recipe manual. There's certainly a, an operations manual. There's a manual that we call managing the business, which is really the back end stuff, you know, the numbers, the PL, what's your chart of accounts? How does that look? And we give them standard chart of accounts. Um, there's a marketing manual. And then there's a training manual that the franchisor has, sort of like a teacher has the teacher's manual, the instructor's manual. Um, that's very important because when the franchisor, can use the manuals as a tool, the franchisor is more likely to use them, put them in front of the franchisee more often, create more value around the manuals. And by the way, that creates more value in the mind's eye of the franchisee and what they paid for when they paid their franchise fee. And you always have a point of reference that you can go back to with the franchisee should a problem arise. So in order to use the manuals, they need to be good, they need to be relevant, and they need to be timely. So to directly answer your question, because I just told you a whole story, um, to directly answer your question, after every single opening, especially with an emerging brand, you need, you know, there's a process in Jim Collins' book, Good to Great, I think it's called Discuss, Decide, Execute, Autopsy. So... 
I'm discussing what I'm doing with that franchisee. We're making decisions, how we're rolling forward, we're executing. And then when that opening is done, the team gets back together and does a post-mortem on how did that opening go? What could we have done better? What do we need to change? What were franchisees scratching their head about that maybe our manuals didn't communicate properly or our vocabulary? Franchisors should develop vocabulary that everyone in the company uses the same way. Um, what can we do to strengthen that vocabulary? So there's, al there's always kind of that autopsy after an opening is done. And very often franchisors go back. I mean, we'll go back. If we wrote the manuals, we'll go back and we'll update those manuals for the franchisor. You know, and I see it as a big issue, right? And then well, I also see emerging brands then get very busy. They sell and, and they don't have... Sometimes they neglect that task. Gary, any, any like technology solutions that, that you're a big fan of in terms of whether it's digital manuals, videos, like anything that you see on the radar that, that you found to be really helpful? Well, yeah, no names named. I don't want to promote right. any companies, but, but I will tell you that uh, obviously your manual should be, uh, the, the content should be digital so that they're downloading. If you're using... Uh, a CRM or an intranet system that you can upload modifications to the manual and then notify franchisees, hey, page seven has been changed, you know, download the new page. Um, if you're rolling out a limited time offer or some promotion that you want to communicate to the franchisee, things like intranets can be very, very helpful um, so that everyone is in the same place. You know, you can do a shared drive. It could be as simple as a shared drive with Google. Um, right. that franchisees have access to. You just have to manage what you're putting in there. Um, certainly, if it's a retail or a restaurant, um, technology behind the point of sale system is very, very important because it will help the franchisee manage the business as well as the franchisor specific reports, not just sales, but you know, in the restaurant business, mix of business, product mix is very important, inventories, things of that nature. The more data... Uh, relevant data, by the way, because people can get, you know, they can get overkill on data. The more relevant data that you have that can kind of fold into the day-to-day -day operation and then trickle down into the P&L and how you uh, read that P&L and how you interpret that P&L is very, very important because when a franchisee or if a franchisee is faced with some financial challenges in their business, you need to not only be able to look at the physical operation, things like ticket times and how are employees greeting guests, but you need to be able to look at a, a, a P&L and uh, talk about cost of goods or talk about labor, talk about uh, different costs that might be over or under and how do you manage those things. By the way, I mentioned, I alluded earlier to a standard chart of accounts. We are really, really big on having our franchisors give their franchisees a standard chart of accounts so that when a franchisee reports their sales and, re and sends that P&L to the company every month or every quarter, mm -hmm. it's in a manner and a form consistent with the franchisors so that if you laid 10 P&Ls from 10 different stores side by side, the, the, the columns all line up. This is very important. It helps the RDO help the franchisee if they get in trouble. And if they're not in trouble, it helps the RDO help the franchisee find opportunities. You know, I, I, I explain to people all the time, if you're running a million dollar 
retail unit. You're running a million dollar retail unit and I save, I save 2% on your cost of goods and 2% on your labor. That's 4% of a million dollars that goes directly to the bottom line. When I do that, first of all, I create incredible value for my franchisees. It's money in their pocket. It's confidence. They don't dare go out of the system and want to go rogue because they don't come up with ideas that put, you know, 40 grand in their pocket or 5,000 5, a year or 20,000 extra a year. They don't come up with those ideas. The, the way they think they achieve it is by skimping on the recipe or something like that. That's not how you increase sales. Um, so that P&L, everything flows from that P&L. And unfortunately, some franchisors don't even collect P&Ls from their franchisees. You know, Gary, I mean, it comes up for me. So for me as a franchise lawyer, the why I care about a chart of accounts is if I'm developing item 19 financial performance representations, mm -hmm. right? And so, and then naturally, right? A good yeah. logical question is, okay, let's go beyond gross sales. Let's evaluate gross profit. And if I have that uniform chart of accounts, I have some integrity to develop, you know, gross profit, financial performance reps or operating margins and stuff like that. So I, 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 I think it's critical. I, and I do think, um, a lot of startups and emerging, they overlook the chart of accounts um, or their operations manual is just so generic. The chart of accounts might as well be for an airline or it right. might as well be for camp. <laughs> yes. You know? yes. And so the data is unworkable, Gary, you know? Yeah. Well, that gets back to the, in order for the franchisor and the franchisee to use the manual, they have to be simple, workable, and relevant. And in that case, what you just mentioned kind of whacks out all three. <laughs> um, I think, I think you know, the other piece to the P&L, and I had this personal experience, so a professional experience, we had a franchisee who was, you know, we would get his top line sales and we would look at his top line sales and he would tell us, by the way, this was before I started doing a standard chart of accounts. I've learned the hard way, okay? Um, you know, he would always be complaining that he wasn't making any money. And when we went and we looked at the P&Ls, uh, we realized that, you know, his accountant was being a good accountant and getting his P&L as low to zero as possible. You know, he had like two cars leased on there, six cell phones. He'd go out for dinner with his wife and write it off as R&D. And, and what we realized was his business was absolutely fine. You know, he didn't have a revenue problem. He had a spending problem. And it took us days to kind of unravel his P&L until we were finally able to say to him, look, what you do with your accountant for your taxes, your business, you want to get it down to zero, have a nice day. But what you need to report to us is take these items and please put them below the line. We call them below the line items because mm -hmm. they're not reflective of your business. They're reflective of how you treat your business. And there's a difference. So that's when we went to a standard chart of accounts. Yeah, it, it's interesting how that topic comes up, but it's big. Um, and, and we have the conversations now all the time and, and you know, as we develop item 19s. Couple of things, right? I, I know one of, again, sort of in the culture space, but for the startup and emerging brands, you know, we spoke and I was really impressed because you do a lot of mentoring with um, franchise founders and emerging franchisors. 
where, where, where's your focus on that? Or where do you see like the biggest assistance that these founders need? Well, they're all different, obviously. Um, I think the biggest hurdle, challenge, um, whatever word you want to attach to it is um, taking someone who's been very, very successful, um, creating something, a, a, a widget, a food product, a concept, a, a restaurant, a storefront, a service, and um, getting them to philosophically cross the bridge that they're no longer in the pizza business. They're in the pizza franchising business. Two very different businesses. Um, people who create are entrepreneurs and founders are very typically entrepreneurs. And as a result, they muscle their way through certain things. And you can't expect a franchisee to muscle their way. You know, the entrepreneur who creates the brand who runs to Restaurant Depot because he didn't order properly because he's ordering from local distributors instead of having a broadliner and an order guide. Um, yeah, it's okay. He's got one or two units. He can send somebody to Restaurant Depot, go buy a bag of cheese. But you can't do that with a franchisee. So the, the greatest challenge is really helping them get over the idea that they need to stop doing what I call the work of the business, which in my example would be making pizzas or running a pizzeria and start doing the work of the business. And the work of the business is to grow the concept in a way that's duplicatable, rep, you know, can be, has repeatable processes. And as my mentor, Michael Gerber would say, that business should operate without you. When you do that and you create that system, you're affording the franchisees the opportunity to employ that system that you're now practicing so that they can do whatever it is they want to do, by the way. So now their business is working for them. They haven't bought a job. But that franchisee is now free to go and open more units. And what better testimonial to the success of a franchisor than to have existing franchisees open more units. I have a brand, one of my brands, uh, virtually every, I think only two uh, franchisees who are relatively new are not multiple unit owners. Every single one of them is a multiple unit owner. So the only way you can do that is to develop a system. The only way to develop that system is for the franchisor to look at their business and the practices of those businesses, that those processes. If they're too busy worrying about you know, the recipe for the donut, because they haven't figured that out yet. If they're too busy doing that, they can't deliver value to their franchisee. And then the whole system falls apart. Ultimately, the franchisees lose confidence in the franchisor. And you want to talk about rogue franchisees. Why do they go rogue? They go rogue because they don't have any confidence in their franchisor. They're, they're thinking the franchisor can't help them make money. So they go into survival mode and figure, well, I better, I better figure this out on my own because Mr. Joe franchisor, he's too busy with his own company stores and he doesn't even know what's going on with me. And then they go rogue. You know, Gary, I, 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 like there's, I, I think your statement there that they go into survival mode, I think there's, I mean, there's probably books on that, right? In terms of not just franchisees, but human nature. I, I, but I've never heard it that way. And I think you're right, right? Because they, once a franchisee does go into survival mode, they do become rogue. 
Um, yeah, and you can't blame them. I mean, they make an investment. People pour their life savings, you know, if they're mom and pop operators, so to speak, they'll, they'll pour their life savings into a franchise operation. So you can't blame them for wanting to protect their investment, especially if the franchisor has not delivered a valuable model that will help the franchisee make money. And by the way, franchisors are too often, too quickly, blame the franchisee for failed units. And uh, that's not to say that in many cases, I don't wanna say most, I'll say many, in many cases, the franchisee is the cause of the problem because they're not following the system, regardless of how good it might be. Um, so that does happen in many cases, but in many cases, the franchisor doesn't really have a system. They're treating the franchisee the way they would treat uh, hiring and training a manager for one of their company stores. And it's a very different relationship. Well, that, that, I mean, it's a great description, right, of the problem as if they were, you know, and, and I, we did a webinar with Lisa Welko consistently. Mm -hmm. Lisa's point was what you're describing is you need to be a good franchisor. And, um, and these are all those things that, and it was interesting too, we, our webinar with Joel Labava, mm -hmm. Joel's main point is, hey, your job is to make your franchisees money, which is your other point that you're making. That, that's, you know what I mean? That's the sole responsibility right. yeah. of a franchisor. Help yeah. your franch, give your franchisees the tools and the systems to make money. You're not guaranteeing a result because they have to execute but you need to give them the system and the tools to make money. That is the responsibility of the franchisor. If you do that, you create more value for the brand and for the trademark. And then when it's time to exit, either for the franchisee or the franchisee, uh, the franchisor, there's more value in the trademark. I, I, I'm not ashamed to tell people that when I sold my Dunkin' Donuts shop, um, I got a lot more money for it because the sign over the door said Dunkin' Donuts, not Gary's Donuts. Mm -hmm. And that's because they did a great job of creating value in that trademark. And, and, and that's really what we all live by. We, that's what I mean when I say that no one franchisee is bigger than the system. I, I, by the way, I didn't make that statement up. I just kind of tweaked it a little bit. I want to tell you, the person who actually said that it was a baseball metaphor, Nolan Ryan, maybe one of the no, the greatest pitcher ever in the history of the game of baseball said no one player is bigger than the game. And when someone like Nolan Ryan, who could have been bigger than the game says something like that, right. you realize, wow, that's the truth. So I apply that same principle to franchising. Gary, the, um, let's stick with the rogue franchisee, right? And, he or she's rogue, let's not attribute why. But for the emerging brands, whether zero units or 70 units, you're at that initial launch stage or that acceleration stage. How do you recommend dealing with rogue franchisees? Okay, well, obviously the first step is to prevent it. And we've kind of gone on here about right. how you prevent it is by creating value and confidence inspiring systems to the franchisee. So uh, what happens is if you're communicating with your franchisee on a regular basis, if you're making your visits, you're going to start to notice, you know, a little bit of coloring outside the lines. Again, it doesn't happen overnight. 
Um, so if your RDO goes into uh, a retail location and realizes that three of the four employees are not in uniform and, oh, well, you know, they leave their uniform home or I didn't buy more shirts or whatever, okay? That's the opportunity to gently correct and, and solve the problem before you walk into a retail store and no one's in a uniform. There's paper handwritten signs taped up on the front glass and the recipes aren't being followed or the system of the, or different chemicals are being used. If it's, I don't know if it's a cleaning franchise, whatever. It doesn't happen overnight. So you have to, it, it's like, it's, it, it's, it's like a pilot flying an airline from Los Angeles to Hawaii. The pilot doesn't see Hawaii, doesn't even, doesn't see it, but the pilot is making gentle little adjustments along the way to get to Hawaii. And if the pilot doesn't make those little tiny adjustments, that little bit of off, off course over the course of a thousand miles can take you a thousand miles off course. So you have to gently correct, counsel the situation as you see it happening. Now, if you're not paying attention to franchisees, if they don't have the tools, if they've lost confidence, then it just becomes, it becomes a, a battle. And when it becomes a battle, I will say that's very rarely the fault of the franchisee and very usually the fault of the franchisor. You know, I, 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 I think that's important. Like you mentioned, well, and some of the things you're mentioning, attention, tools, right, metrics. Gary, how, um, what's, in terms of reporting system sales and system data to franchisees, is that something your brands do on a weekly basis to, to you know, guide everyone as to where other franchisees are operating in sales? And um, no, well, they do and they don't, not weekly. Um, some actually will publish, of course, they don't, um, they don't indicate you know, which franchisee or which unit. So they might number units one to 10 okay. and talk about sales or talk about cost of goods or talk about what I call, some companies call them uh, CSGs, you know, a store audit. I call them, I call them MSMs, mission statement measurements, because okay. I just believe philosophically, if you're coming in to kind of audit the performance of a, of a bricks and mortar store or franchisee, you're really measuring them against your mission. So mission statement measurement, um, those scores will be published, but again, not, there's no names named. Now, what does this do? I remember I learned this in Duncan, they would do this. Um, I think they did it quarterly. They might've done it monthly. I, I you know, I'm trying to go back to 1985 here now when I owned my shop. Um, but it not only became competitive because you knew you, you knew who your store was, okay? <laughs> but you didn't know who the other stores were. So it became competitive. But one of the things that we, I later used as a, as a teaching tool to franchisees who weren't necessarily inclined to follow the system was you start to see trends and you see this with mystery shoppers as well as uh, these store audits is you start to see that the units that follow the system and score higher on a compliance audit typically have better sales, better cost of goods and lower labor. That the performance, how much they, how closely they follow the system is directly tied into their sales. Now, is it 100% of the time? Of course not. 
nothing's 100%. But it is enough that you could take a franchisee and say, look, don't you see all the stores with the highest sales are all the stores with the highest compliance scores. So let's get to work on making your operation compliant with the system. That's what you bought into. That's what will help your sales follow the system. It's interesting that, what did you call it, Gary? Um, compliance in terms, you said, well, some what people, you said was some, culture or what did you say? What yes, you call I call it a mission statement measurement. Some, some companies call it a, an audit. Some, I think Duncan used to call it a CSG, a customer satisfaction guide, uh, all these things. And franchisees sometimes, you know, they can, you know, they, they can get, nervous or aggravated when the RDO shows up with the clipboard to, you know, uh, you know, inspect the store. It shouldn't be that. Um, it should be, we're coming in to measure the performance of the store against our mission. The closer we are to our mission, the closer we are to our brand position, and the higher you score on those things, the more money ultimately you will make. I, 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 I really better. think that's, that's an amazing way of looking at it. Well, you can look, it's you, consistent with business development for that, you know, in uh, general, the, you, the, the everything and where they're going and where they're building. I, I learned, I learned something from a very wise friend of mine who, who came up from a very hard time and is now outrageously successful. And, and it's about how you view things. So I'll give you an example. If, when I ask a franchisee, tell me the three things that you want out of your business invariably they won't tell me the three things they want they'll tell me the three things that they don't want so an example um you know the, like if i use it on a human level and i said well um i don't want to be sick that's a very different point of view than saying i want to be healthy one mm -hmm. is positive one is negative now a lot of people don't buy into that okay so i do and to each his own but when you're talking about corporate culture, when you focus the franchisee on the positive aspects of the job or the positive aspects of the results that they'll get when they're in compliance, not that they're not going to get in trouble. Oh, well, if you don't do it, you know, you're going to get in trouble. Rather, if you do it this way, you'll have more time and more money. And isn't that why you got into business? Now, again, you cannot start that midway. That starts at the very first point of contact with a prospect. You start, that's why I, I think I mentioned earlier about vocabulary. Franchisors need to have very specific vocabulary so that everyone in their organization is talking the same way. They have the same way that they, uh, that they express particular topics so that it all ties in. There's no, there's no little cracks in the system. Because when there's little cracks in the system, whether it be uh, a recipe, whether it be vocabulary, whether it be a piece of equipment, when there are cracks in the system, that's when franchisees start to lose confidence in the franchisor. Gary, I, I got to say this. The, um, it's refreshing to hear that. And it's, it's so interesting how, because when I start these webinars at the beginning, I'm like, how is this all tied together? And Boy, you just tied all of that together. Well, and, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm glad. <laughs> you know, but I'm, you know, I mean, like in a, because again, it's so hard when you talk about mission and culture, 
very vague and general stuff for most people. And now I'm even envisioning for the startup franchisors and the emerging and having that team meeting. And, but see, I, I think it's also important what you're saying, which is, again, the points about our jobs to make the franchisees money and take them on this journey and process. So I, I really appreciate all of that. Gary, yeah, I just wanted to say sometimes it's conflicting. Um, it's certainly conflicting for my organization because sometimes, you know, our salespeople will do a good job of getting someone to the table yeah. and I'll be the first one to tell the franchisor, do not award that person a franchise. Now, when that happens, my salespeople are not happy because they just lost out on some commission money. But in the long term, it makes sense because if they bring that wrong person in, my salespeople will have more difficulty later on down the line trying to uh, sell a franchise to someone. So for me, it's very conflicting, but I always err on the side of what are, what, how does this decision impact me long-term? Just one other like quick example to that, you, you know, I think you, you may know, I, I do a lot of seminars at IFE in New York and I do one about private equity <clears throat> and the mistakes that startups and emerging brands make in the beginning that kind of messes up a deal that they may get five or 10 years later because they haven't, they don't have the leases for all their franchisees or they gave up royalties to a sales company or they, uh, they negotiated a royalty or whatever that, you know, they think it's what they need to do to sell the franchise again, cause they're undercapitalized to begin with. And then, you know, 10 years down the road when they're looking to get exit money, all of a sudden that multiple goes from a 12 to an eight because they screwed up 10 years ago by making some crazy little decisions. So it all, everything touches everything else, everything. So Gary, um, because I'm a big fan of your book recommendations. I'm not going to go into it here. <laughs> My favorite one was Creature from Jekyll Island. But from a uh, business standpoint, <laughs> what, 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 what books do you recommend? I'm curious. Um, there's, a, there's a few books that, that I actually I, I have given away hundreds of copies of The E-Myth Revisited right. by Michael Gerber. I, I literally, when I meet people, I mail it to them. Um, my three... Uh, my, one of my, the last people I met, I mailed it to was an Uber driver that I met in Houston. Um, so the Emith revisited for sure. Um, there's a great book out by a friend of mine. His name is Jermaine Miller. And uh, Jermaine is a real estate person, the person I alluded to earlier. He has a book out called Wake Up and Win. And it's really about changing your point of view. I think that's a great book. Jim Collins, Good to Great. Uh, Peter Thiel, Zero to One. By the way, I'm, I'm also an advocate of, you know, get in the habit of reading every day for an hour, at least, you know, if you can get through a book a month, that, that's, that's great. Um, some of the other books that I personally like, one other book is a book called The Voice of Your Soul, which talks about the law of attraction and positivity. And if you practice those things, that abundance will come to you and you'll view things in a positive way so that when challenges arise, instead of catastrophizing and not being able to deal with them, your frame of mind will be, okay, this is a moment in time. It's a problem. How do we deal with it? Those would be my top five or six books that I recommend. I like it. I'm going to, I'm going to check out a right, wake up and win in the voice of your soul. The other ones I've read, but I'll okay, read it. Good. I'm going to, those, I think those are, uh, those sound interesting. 
Um, Gary, I, and so again, you're, again, for the, probably a, a bunch of people, almost everyone knows Gary in the industry, but uh, Gary's managing partner, Franchise Growth Solutions, and, and that's the website. And of course, for our clients, anyone will be glad to connect you with Gary. Um, and again, if you're a startup or emerging franchisor, I think you see from this webinar, definitely. The one thing I know about Gary that's amazing is whether you're working with him or not, he's always so generous in helping everyone out. I know he's never uh, not gone out of his way to at least help me out whenever I've asked or, or anything like that. So, Gary, thank you so much. No, that's very kind of you to say, uh, Charles. And, and um, I just you know, want to underscore that point. We will spend time on the phone or face-to-face -face with individuals who may never become our clients, and that's okay for us. We're just... We're putting good stuff out there and we're getting good stuff back. Yeah, and I know that's genuine. Gary, thank you, Gary. And My pleasure. Uh, yeah, hopefully I'll see you soon. You will. Thank you. <laughs> Take care.